HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the culinary wonders of urban New Jersey with a tour through Newark. We speak to Frank Mentisana at Phillips Academy Public Charter School. This idea of family style and made-from-scratch lunches continues to be a bit of an anomaly in the city. We also hear from Gil Speyer from All Points West Distillery. Newark used to have an incredibly rich beverage alcohol history. And we'll tour Aero Farms, the world's largest indoor vertical farm. We're growing using 390 times more productivity than field farming and 95% less water. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network to be amazed at the wonders of Newark. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all of the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, cooking is fun. We live in a time of more and more information sharing, more studies on health and wellness, more brands, more travel. I mean, there's like a dozen companies who will ship a mattress right to your door. We have more available food and ingredients than ever, and yet it seems that few people cook for themselves or know anything about cooking. I'd like to think that balance is changing, but it's hard for me to tell from inside my own bubble. I talk about cooking and recipes all the time, but does everyone else? I care about where my food comes from, but does everyone else? I like exploring new-to-me ingredients in my kitchen and teaching my kids how to use a knife. But does everyone else? We're obsessed with efficiency and how to get more and more work, I read that as profit, out of our time and ourselves. I say make time to cook. Make time to sit down with your family and share a meal, not just once a week. Do it more. Cooking is a relaxing and engaging way to strengthen your brain, connect with your family, and you get a delicious sense of accomplishment when you put a meal on the table. I do it almost every day, and I love it. At the Brooklyn Kitchen, the cooking school that my wife Taylor runs, we are on a mission to teach people how to cook like grown grown adults. We believe that cooking for yourself, like reading, is something that all modern adults should know how to do. My guest today has been teaching people how to cook for more than 35 years and is one of the most important people in food today. 
She's the founder and chief instructor at the Ballymaloe Cookery School in Shanagary, County Cork, Ireland. She's the author of more than 10 books, director of Slow Food Ireland, an accomplished television host, and she sits on many important panels on food and still finds time to spend with her 11 grandchildren. If you don't know who Darina Allen is, you should, and you will after today's conversation. Thanks, Darina, for taking a moment out of your busy schedule to chat today. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, that was really beautiful to listen to, um, you know, your priorities and everything there, and I hope people, I'm sure people will be inspired by them. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, it's been in no part inspired by you, so I have to thank you for that. <laughs> Mm, thank you. Um, so I want to, uh, you know, I, I uh, in researching this uh, this interview, and, and you know, you and I met a number of years ago in New York, actually at the Brooklyn Kitchen uh, here. And I'm sorry that I missed you. Darina is currently in Ireland, so we're talking by phone. I'm sitting in Bushwick, and she's back in Ireland, even though you were here last week. Um, I wanted to sort of start a little bit at the beginning. I mean, I listened to a lot of interviews, and you talked about going to boarding school with the with the nuns and and that sort of thing. <laughs> the Dominican uh, nuns. Love Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I wanted to, you know, sort of, I, you know, I guess start with how you ended up working in a kitchen. Um, and it wasn't what you sort of wanted to do originally, um, but you actually took a job initially working for your future mother-in-law, right? Yes, well, actually, back to the lovely Dominican nuns. I was uh, at boarding school in the 90, early 1960s, and uh, the uh, nuns were, the Dominican nuns were considered to be very visionary nuns. Indeed, they were. Sure. And at that stage, long before you were born, probably, uh, they were encouraging us girls, because, of course, it was only girls in the school, to have a proper career, you know, do law, do the sciences, do medicine, architecture, whatever. But all I wanted to do was to cook yeah. or to garden. It was the only thing I knew anything about really from home and all of that so and I was quite the disappointment uh, <laughs> uh, because I remember one of the nuns drawing herself up to her full height and saying well you're never going to need that my dear you know why would you want to learn how to cook right. or to grow you know you're going to be a professional woman and you're going to have a career and anyway I persisted and uh, so then when they couldn't get me to do something else they said well it has to be either a degree in horticulture or it has to be hotel management because mm. uh, this was long before the time when chefs or cooks were even their names were known not to speak of having celebrity status and it was also ironically very difficult for a woman in fact almost impossible for a woman to get into a restaurant kitchen the men with the high chef's toques were uh, were chefs and uh, women just you know ran tea shops or kept out of mischief or something so I was terribly lucky that and in a funny way you never know in your life what's the tiny thing that can change the course of the rest of your life actually and it was one day one of the senior tutors in the in the college who had a particular interest in me because she knew my mother from years earlier um, asked whether I'd got a job and was kind of thought I was hopeless when I hadn't got a job as an assistant manager which is the sort of job most people would have got from my course and they'd have had a little uniform and a little badge and would be all important and it was another name for slave really yeah. And but all I wanted to do was to cook and so she told me I was far too fussy but anyway I, and I also wanted to learn more about fresh herbs and how to make souffles and terrines and homemade ice cream. I had a big thing about making, learning how to make homemade ice cream. And these were all very exotic in the 60s. And anyway, she uh, told me, as I said, that I was too fussy. Why wouldn't I be like the rest of them? And then she said, funny, I was at a dinner party the other night and they were talking about this woman down in Cork. Uh, she's a farmer's wife and she seems to have opened a restaurant in her own house right out in the country, you know, near the sea. And she writes the menu every day, depending on what's in the 
you know, what's in the garden and all the rest of this. Now, by the way, this is at a time when, when restaurants opened. They wrote the menu as the same 10 years later. Sure. So this was all kind of in incredulous tones. And she, then she couldn't remember the woman's name. So and I said, <laughs> my God. And she said they have a Jersey hair. They make their own ice cream and all the rest of it. And so I said, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. So she went away. And a few days later, she met me again. And she said, she handed me a piece of paper. And she said, this is the name of that woman. Write to her. And the name on the piece of paper was Myrtle Allen, who mm. uh, subsequently became my mother-in-law. I became a member of the family by the simple expedient of marrying the boss's son. Yeah. So that's how it's done. <laughs> so sorry, that's a big, long answer to uh, a no, very, no. Uh, very short, uh, short question. Like, yeah. like you said, I mean, you never know sort of what path your, your life is going to take. My aunt oh, wanted, yes. to, wanted yeah. to be a chef in the early 70s, and my grandfather, famously in the family, wouldn't let her go to culinary school. Yeah, um, and it was only years later that she became a baker and became a, a you know, oh. professional in food. Well, gosh, I, whoever is uh, listening, um, um, I, I do really want to say, you know, either for yourself or indeed, let let's let our children follow their dream. Absolutely. Because so often, you know, we try to. It's tempting to try to live um, our our children's lives, uh, our lives, or our missed lives to our children, and uh, sometimes we can thwart them into doing what they really want to do. Unfortunately, I was fortunate to actually do, be able to do what I want to do. And you never do a day's work in your life when you're, when you're doing something you love doing. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So you grew up the eldest of nine. Uh, and <laughs> and I be, you had a cow growing up, correct? Oh, yes. Well, we lived, I've always lived in the country. I love, love, love the country. It would be, I love to visit the city from time to time, but it would be absolute torture for me to live in a city because I'm very much a country girl, even though I'm now 70. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, indeed, we lived in a little village in the Midlands of Ireland in County Leash called Cullahill. And uh, we had a house cow, a, little, a curry cow, because my mother always, and as indeed Myrtle did, felt very strongly about the importance of us having raw milk, really mm. good quality, fresh milk. And uh, also, of course, we had hens and we had, mummy would rear uh, with one of the men in the yard, uh, chickens for the table. And we also had a kitchen garden and apple trees and all of that. And it was like, that was our norm. And mummy right. loved to cook. I was really fortunate that my mother was a really good, what you, is certainly not a derogatory term, a wonderful home cook. Mm. And, uh, you know, did all, in fact, this afternoon, I just here, I, at a, I was, came out of a cooking class at the, at the cooking school and I just did a steam pudding. One of the students had asked me to show them how to make a steam pudding. Um, and I made a sort of jam pudding that she would have made in the winter. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's what, in a way, and there, we have, one has so many happy memories of the food that uh, we had as children, you know. Mm. So, so tell me a little bit more. I mean, I think that, you know, here, here in the United States, certainly we don't have a, we don't have a clear idea. I mean, you know, I don't, I can't think of a single Irish restaurant uh, that I'm aware of, you know, very specifically. Well, plenty of I, Irish pubs over well, there. Well, that's what I was going to say, right? I mean, I think Peter O'Toole famously said that his three favorite Irish foods were Guinness. <laughs> so, so, so tell me a little bit about, I mean, you know, so what do you consider to be kind of some of the mainstays of Irish food that people oh. should be paying attention to and should be making at home? Yeah, well, honestly, um, you know, the food as, as in, as in America and everywhere else, the food has trained, changed dramatically the whole food scene here in Ireland in the last 
uh, 30 or 35 years. And uh, whereas, you know, the, the cliched Irish stew and bacon and cabbage and champ and parsley sauce and the lovely soda breads and, um, you know, uh, we have wonderful, of course, we, in, we're, as you know, an island nation, we have a long coastline, so we have wonderful fish and shellfish as well. Yep. So we have fantastic produce here in Ireland because a lot of fertile soil, no shortage of water, thank goodness, um, and uh, also long growing season. So, but now in the last uh, 25, 30 years, you know, the whole restaurant scene has changed incredibly. The young chefs travel all over the world. They and actually does two things. Of course, it, they learn more, gives them extra confidence. But more than anything, what happens is the penny drops. How good are produce is in Ireland and you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. You have to start mm. with good ingredients yeah. and here we have them in spades and then we have one of the most exciting things that's happened on the Irish food scene I suppose in the last 25-30 years uh, are, is the emergence of an artisan food sector making farmhouse cheeses, you know, smoking fish, making cured meats, jams, chutneys, pickles, you know, uh, cakes, home baking uh, also, and then people rearing lovely fat ducks and chickens and geese and all of that. So, And then the farmer's market movement, of course, as well, which I actually, of all the things that I've been involved with in all the years, the thing that has, I feel most proud of, <laughs> if I could say such a thing, is restarting the farmer's market and mo- movement in Ireland. Yeah, tell me Ireland. a little bit about that. Yeah, sorry. No, I was going to say, tell me, I, I was going to ask about the farmer's market movement in Ireland and yeah. about, about your work to kind of, you know, you say restarted it. So can you tell me a little bit yeah. about the history? Well, uh, and then you know, the thing, this was actually inspired by a trip to San Francisco because um, I, I'm not sure if the market in the farmer's market in San Francisco is the first new age farmer's market in America, but certainly, oh golly, I don't know when this was, the late 80s, the, sometime late 80s maybe or something. Sure. Uh, basically, um, I went over to visit a friend, Mary Risley, who had a cooking school in San mm-hmm. Francisco uh, called Tom Marie's. I'm sure you remember yep. it. And at that stage, I remember I arrived in late at night and she said, look, we won't stay up late. We'll have a little glass of wine and a bit of cheese or something because I want to, you to be up at seven in the morning <laughs> to go to see this farmer's market. And at that stage, it was in a parking lot. It wasn't even in the very plaza. Sure. And anyway, I said, no way. But anyway, she's even bossier than me. So basically, out she got me out of bed and down to see this. Oh, my God, it was like a light bulb moment. Suddenly, I saw all these wonderful uh, stalls with, uh, um, you know, uh, people who'd, many people who'd, uh, professional people, actually, who had, you know, moved from the East Coast to the West Coast for lifestyle reasons, making bread, you know, growing flowers, rearing chickens, doing all sorts of things, and then selling on their stalls. And then I think it was Rose Pistoia, that restaurant had moved down to the market on that day as well, because that was the place to see and be seen. And for me, this was an incredibly important moment, because of course, I'd seen lots of, of uh, markets in um, in Europe and France and Spain, Italy, and all of that. But this was a different kind of market with a different sort of person, you know, selling, and they were so passionate about what they were doing and everything. And then at that, it coincided with something happening here in Ireland. The supermarkets had come on stream, and um, the a lot of the whole small shop thing had all changed a lot, and. So suddenly a lot of the supermarkets were buying up some of the small shops and Mm. they were going over to what they call a central distribution system. So the shop would ring up the center depot and order their stuff for the week. It would all come down in a truck 
and it would be delivered. And those shops would then penalise the local shops if they actually bought more than 2% of local produce. <laughs> so suddenly, and a lot of people didn't realise this, local people who had a few acres of land and were growing a few cabbages and potatoes and, you know, um, and selling them into the local shop and they'd get paid and it would be kind of, they'd have a little chat everywhere they went and it was part of their social life and everything, were suddenly told by the shop that they were no longer allowed to buy it. Mm. So suddenly, local people who had, couldn't buy their local food any longer because it wasn't available in the local shop. And many of those farmers and producers were too small to go into central distribution. Mm. Now, this was happening kind of off the radar where the general public consumer didn't realise it. But I, we knew about it because we buy from a lot of local uh, producers for, our, for the Ballymaloo Cookery School here and for Ballymaloo House. And they were telling us about this. So suddenly here I am standing in the, uh, down in the, in the parking lot there, wherever it was in San Francisco. And I suddenly think, oh my God, if I could restart or if we could restart uh, the, the market movement in Ireland again, local people could buy local food from the local farmers and producers who want to sell it. Otherwise, they couldn't meet because people are too busy to go out to farms every day and all that sort of thing. So I came back all fired up, told my mother to know about it. And the following year, we started a farmer's market with about eight or ten stallholders, many of them who are still doing farmer's markets, in the Cold Key in Cork, where there'd been a market for over 400 years that was in the city and you know much to the amusement of the uh, the third and fourth generation uh, shawlies as we call them t- uh, traders who mm. always wore shawls yeah. and I was on television at the time and they couldn't believe their eyes when they saw me standing behind a stall because you have to understand that this was an extraordinary thing to do in Ireland because of our history the idea of selling off a stall on the side of the street was anathema to Irish people because mm. of our poverty in our past so right. you know uh, somebody said to me well you'd want to what are you thinking of you'd want to be on your knees to sell a, off a stall on the side of the street but so I knew how important it was for me to be behind a stall and to be selling the prod- lovely organic produce from our farm and then there was Frank Heatherman with his lovely smoked fish beside me Caroline Robinson with other vegetables and basically uh then people, actually it was even more interesting than that because the, the, the Cold Key in Cork is an area where the people who lived in Montanotti and Rochestown Road and all of that in Cork wouldn't be seen dead walking into the, that area of Cork. But when I was there behind a stall with a whole lot of others, they all started to come there. Right. And it, it, it got the whole thing going and then we started another one in Middleton. Now there are about 160 farmers markets in Ireland Amazing. and more actually. And many, many farmers would not, and they've told me Many times they would not be still on the land if it wasn't for the farmer's market. So if you're lucky enough to have a farmer's market close to you, and you, gosh, you have a wonderful one there in San Francisco, and uh, I was in New York the other day, and yeah. of course there's a, a Union Square market there many days of the week, the biggest one on Saturday. My goodness, they, these people are heroes. They drive sometimes two and a half, three hours to bring this beautiful produce to us, and every time you see them, you need to give them a big hug and yeah. tell them how wonderful they are. <laughs> and pay them what they need to be paid for making that kind of growing and producing that kind of lovely food for us. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, I think that it's such a, you know, it, it is so important that we now have the farmer's market movement, and it's so nice to hear that it's going on in other places. Yeah, it's real food. This yeah. is the sort of food we need, not edible food-like substances, and as as as, as Michael Pollan says, yes. uh, and he's quite right, or ultra-processed food is killing us, and I don't use that word lightly now. Yeah. I use it absolutely intentionally, there's no question. Just real food, and to be able to cook, as you so rightly said, 
it means you know you're 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 free otherwise mm-hmm. we're totally dependent on other people for the very um, the most important aspect of our lives the food that we eat and nourish ourselves and our children with and and it's what uh, again you you also refer there to the importance and I know everybody's so busy but of making time to sit down around the kitchen table and uh, with an, uh, even with your family and a few friends or whatever and even if you're only arguing you're keeping the lines of communication open <laughs> <laughs> it's a very it's a very good point definitely it's with worth it. <laughs> with my 9 year old and 5 year old there's definitely a lot of arguing at the table but it's good to remember that <laughs> at least we're spending time together well they'll remember they'll remember they won't remember the arguments they'll remember the flavors absolutely mm. we're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors and uh, when we come back i want to talk about a couple of your books Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Are you enjoying our podcast? Heritage Radio Network has lots more. I'm Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. And together we host Why Food, a podcast about innovators, career changers, and entrepreneurs who are changing the face of food. How did these folks decide to hit the brakes, start over, and become inspiring chefs, entrepreneurs, farmers, and activists they are today? Browse episodes of Why Food wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and if you're just tuning in, I have on the phone all the way from Ireland, Darina Allen, uh, who is the founder and chief instructor of the Ballymaloo Cookery School. Thanks, Darina, again for taking time to talk with me today. Thank you. So you've written a number of books, uh, I think more than 10 now, uh, and (laughs) I wanted to talk about one in particular, um, The Forgotten Skills of Cooking. Oh, yes, indeed, yeah. And I, you know, I, I love the, I love the title of it. And I love the idea that we have, you know, we have probably forgotten more than we remember, uh, about cooking historically, uh, as, as a, as a culture or as a, as a species, I suppose. Um, but we keep adding things in, right? Like you see now the rise of things like the instant pot, um, which while, you know, on the one hand I think is great because it means that people are cooking. It's a tool that people don't necessarily need, right? Yes, you can make stock in it, but you can make stock in any vessel you can put on the fire and you can heat. So I wanted to know, you know, what do you think are some of the most relevant forgotten skills of cooking. You know, most people probably aren't going to go home and make their own butter unless they do have a cow in their yard, like you've been lucky enough to have for most of your life. <laughs> or, um, it's, well, I'll go back to that in a minute, but yeah. Uh, but basically, you know, the Instapot, I've seen that in America. And, you know, I actually think that's a really good thing. I don't have one because you have a different voltage uh, right. um, over there. But, I mean, um, I was actually really intrigued by this because you can cook very slowly, you could use it as a pressure cooker. Sure. 
et cetera, et cetera. So I, uh, and anything for me, anything that makes it easier for people to cook something um, in, you know, to cook something in the kitchen and, and, and put it down on the table and share it uh, is really worth having. And uh, so I did, of all the things, I have no connection, needless to say, to, to the company or anything, yeah. but of all the things I've seen around, that's one of the better things by a long way. Sure. Um, but anyway, um, the, the question there was tools, is it? Or what was oh, the question? I mean, it was just about forgotten skills. I mean, you know. Oh, yeah, if, forgotten if, skills. Which, oh, yeah, which well, actually, skills... funnily, the, the reason that that Forgotten Skills book, which is about three books back, I think the next one I did after that was encouraging people to grow some food and mm-hmm. grow, cook, nourish, and, and, um, which is another uh, great big book. But the, the reason why I wrote that Forgotten Skills book was actually, again, triggered by an incident. I was in one of the kitchens one, one morning here in the school, and I suddenly saw a student dashing across the kitchen with a bowl, looking a bit flustered, quite close to lunchtime. And, and I, there was something about the way she was, that she looked that I said, oh, hang on a minute, what's in the bowl? And she said, oh, I was whipping cream and it's gone all funny. And uh, I was going to give it to the hens. Now, normally in the kitchens, because we live here in the country and we have about 600, uh, 600 hens mm. in, in various flocks that, uh, you know, so we have enough eggs for the cooking school and for the family and all that. And uh, so there's a, there's, there would be hens buckets in every kitchen so the scraps from the morning's cooking, if they don't qualify for the stockpot, would go to the hens and Got then it. come back as eggs a few days yep. later. So that would normally be a good thing to be giving it to the hens rather than throwing it out. And, but, and I looked into the bowl and I said, look, hang on a minute. You've just overwhipped it. You're, it's just turning into butter. And she looked, I mean, even though she, this was on a 12-week certificate course here yep. where we're teaching students, you know, to get with the skills to, so they can, you know, go into restaurant kitchens and so on. And she was here for a couple of weeks and she obviously knew that butter came from cream but had no idea how it got from cream to butter. Right. And I said, look, oh, you've overwhipped it. It's just turning into butter, separating it from the buttermilk and, and the butter. And so I put it back on the on the machine, on the, 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 the uh, Kenwood, and uh, beat it a bit more, and then it started to slosh around the bowl, and uh, the buttermilk came out, and then she could see the butter. And by that stage, half of the class was gathered around me, all wide-eyed. And mm. I thought, oh, my God, all of these, none of them know how to make butter. Right. And, uh, and you see, I was uh, grew up, uh, oh, I'm, I'm 70 now, so I was born in 1948. But, you know, I, when I was going on my school, my school holidays, you didn't go to Lanzarote or Ibiza or somewhere. You, went, you were sent off to your, uh, spend a couple of weeks with your relatives in Tipperary to get a bit of bog hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my great aunt Lil made butter every couple of days and, uh, you know, uh, they killed pigs and made black and white puddings, all that sort of thing. So I just caught the end of an era there. So I just knew how to make butter from right. a child. So anyway, I just I washed, I poured off the buttermilk, uh, washed off the butter, added some salt, and uh, and they were absolutely thrilled. And I suddenly thought, oh my god, this is just one of the many forgotten skills. Sure. So in other words, these wonderful young people who love to cook and everything would have just thrown this out without realising that, look, you don't have to have a cow to make butter. Yeah. Uh, you, you can just, if you overwhip cream instead of throwing it out, you just turn it into butter. Yeah. And so it's a basic skill. And so then that was the beginning of the Forgotten Skills book. And, of course, it's everything from how to, uh, you may not need this next week in, in uh, uh, Brooklyn, but how to, you know, skin a rabbit, how to <laughs> prepare a rabbit, how to, uh, you know, to make homemade sausages, how to fillet a fish, how to... 
pluck a, pluck a pheasant, all sorts of uh, um, how to make, even for goodness sake, how to make uh, bread. There, And so it's quite a big book, as you know. And actually that book won the, uh, this is not a boast really, it's just a fact, uh, it won the Andre Simon Award, which mm-hmm. is kind of the Oscars of <laughs> cookbook awards over this side of the world. And it's, it also really let me express my passion for passing on uh, skills to the next generation. And nowadays, it's super cool to be able to do all these things yourself as well. At that time, it was, it was just beginning to be cool again. Sure, I, I mean, find that both the girls and the boys now, you know, they want to know how to pluck a, a pheasant or how to do all these things again, which is uh, years ago, people would, you know, would just not want to have anything to do with it. Sure. I mean, you mentioned we won't need that in Brooklyn about, I don't know, a month ago or so, I got a text message from a friend who said, will you come over and help me kill my chickens? Oh, uh, because well he knew that yeah. I knew how to do it and he and his wife had had chickens for th- four or five years and they had stopped laying regularly yeah. and it was time for oh. the soup pot but they didn't know how to do it and so I went over there on a morning and I brought you know I told him how to do it and I said well you have to kill them they're your chickens but I'll tell you yeah. what to do and, and you know we, and we you dispatched can do them it and, really humanely and yep. then um, you pluck it and then the, the chicken make a lovely cockle van or yep. whatever it has an honourable end yes, uh, on, exactly. on a place celebrated on your place how lovely is that exactly I, I love the story of about the butter, I can just imagine having done a lot of teaching myself. I mean, that sounds like one of those wonderful moments where you can yeah. see in all of the students' eyes the wheels turning in their brain when it finally yeah. clicks and they understand it. I remember when we first started doing pig butchering classes at the Brooklyn Kitchen back in 2007, mm-hmm. that the moment where people saw this half a pig and the moment in their brain as it started to be taken apart by the butcher and they understood that it went sort of flip-flopped back and forth between being meat and being an animal yes. in their head and they came to understand that bacon is next to the pork chops. Watching those moments are my favorite when teaching classes. I know, and, and also it's really important if we eat meat and, uh, and, and that it's really good meat and that the animals are really well and hu- reared and humanely killed and everything. And that I, I know there's a huge vegan mo- movement now, uh, but I feel really, I'm, I'm what you might call a flexitarian. Yeah. I you know, I have some meat and fish and, and vegetables and lovely plants and all of that. But uh, I personally see absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever in, in rearing animals beautifully and then celebrating them. Do you think that Do you think that people in Ireland? I mean, so I've I have been to Ireland twice, and I absolutely love it. One of the the most striking things for me that I remember upon the first trip, first time I landed at the Dublin airport, was that you can see cows out the window of the plane which in I mean (laughs) a lot of cows over here we can grow grass like nowhere else in the world so we are uh, you know our our dairy products our butter you get the lovely Kerrygold butter over there and there's no question it's superb quality and then of course our beef and our lamb that uh, that feed on that grass, of course, are also uh, um, really beautiful quality. So yeah. we're very uh, fortunate with that. But we also, next time you're coming now, we have, we have a lovely airport in Cork, you know, right beside us here, about yes. half an hour away that you can fly directly into. Um, from actually Norwegian Airlines, I think, could fly directly into Cork from Boston anyway, mm. but otherwise from London. Well, yeah. we'll have to we'll have to come and visit. But my so I'm, I'm wondering if because of that, do you think that that Irish people are closer to their food at this point than than a lot of Americans are. I mean, I think that America, especially in the city, uh, well, and obviously yeah. I know you have cities in Ireland too, but because the country is somewhat smaller and is an island country, you know, and, and I feel like it, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know if you feel like people do have more of a connection to their food or if it's part of this modern thing where we're well, all looking at know, our phones. Well, you know, I'd love to tell you yes, uh, but, uh, you know, we like to follow the American model a lot. 
And uh, so, in fact, uh, a lot of, um, I mean, in in some ways, um, there are, not everybody now, because you can never, you know, say it's never black and white, but basically um, the uh, a lot of, um, you know, people, in many cases, there's one and sometimes two generations now out of uh, we've allowed out of our houses without giving them basic skills to feed themselves properly, right. which is desperately serious. And one of the things I hope I can see happen before I hang up my apron, and that won't be until I'm popping my socks pretty much, <laughs> um, Will is that I, I'd like to see uh, cooking re-embedded in the school curriculum. Yeah. Uh, it's absolutely essential. We're failing in our duty to our young people to let them out of our houses without giving them the basic skills to feed themselves properly. And so they're totally dependent on, you know, takeouts or uh, or on other people to feed them. And and I mean, also we're oh sorry, we're actually depriving them of the joy of cooking something themselves. I mean, if you can cook. Um, you know, it doesn't. You don't have. It's it's not rocket science to do a few simple little yep. uh, dishes, and you know, uh, you'll never be short of friends. It's the easiest way to win friends and influence people. <laughs> you can travel anywhere in the world, uh, and the way to everybody's heart is still through a, a, a wonderful apple tart or lovely soda bread and butter or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. There's a. We're very lucky. I mean, there's my kids have access to a program called Wellness in the Schools that's in the good. New York City public schools that actually. I mean, they do a very good job of encouraging kids in the cafeteria to eat healthier foods and then they have a class I think once a week each class you know gets to go and talk about food and they do you know they do some minor cooking and stuff as as is possible in elementary school oh that well it's uh, the the people who have have the the kids have that um, that, that actual opportunity are so fortunate. I mean, here at the Banlucuca School in East Cork in Ireland, we link in with nine local schools, and we uh, all of the schools must have a school garden and be the, teach the children how to grow vegetables and herbs. And then we sent a chicken coop, coop and two hens to all of the schools, oh, that's great. Uh, so that the kids can uh, learn. How they keep the hens as well. And I reckon, you know, we were had the Celtic Tiger period over here. Then the whole economy collapsed yeah. in 2008. And I, from that on, I said we have to teach as many kids in the local area how to cook as possible. And if they can cook, and they can grow, and they can learn, they know how to keep hens and have their own eggs and everything. It doesn't matter what the bankers do, basically, they'll yep. be just fine. Uh, so it was giving them the basic skills. And then here, at the, we also do transition year courses here at the school for, uh, well, we do all kinds of courses: days, weekends, weeks, three months, everything. But uh, for for people, for uh, kids in their teens, uh, you know that are coming towards the end of their what you would call your the high school time and we teach them how to sow seeds and how to uh, how to, uh, uh, to how to cook and how to bake and do things together and they absolutely love it and then they have a little kit of recipes that when they go to university or whatever they can uh, or uh, to college as you call it they can cook for themselves and uh, uh, and all of that so that's one of the things that I love doing most actually that's awesome. Well, we're getting we're getting near the end of our time together today on the phone. But I wanted to ask uh, you for even just like an off the off the top of your head, not a you know specifically written out recipe. But is there something that you're cooking right now, or something that reminds you of spring in Ireland that people should be looking at to cook? Well, you know, talk about spring! My goodness, uh, you know the reality of climate change really 
uh, came home to us this year where normally uh, asparagus is in season in May and we grow quite a bit of asparagus and sea kale, which is another amazing, Mm. very special vegetable. Um, We grow uh, here on the farm and we've eaten three meals of asparagus so far and this is before uh, we we had some um, before the, even before the end of February. I mean, absolutely spooky. It's not meant to be like that. Normally it would be May before we have asparagus. And we've also a sea kale, which we eat with, um, with, which is blanche, and we eat with a little hollandaise sauce on toast or whatever, uh, or the first of the wild salmon. Um, basically, we've had, we had that the other night, and that's normally not in season until April. Wow. So um, the, those are two really beautiful foods. That it's, and of course, at the moment as well, there's lots of rhubarb. That's mm. the, the, you know, the new season's rhubarb. We're a little bit ahead uh, in terms of season than you are right. uh, there in New York and Brooklyn. But uh, um, we have uh, uh, lots of lovely rhubarb pies, roast rhubarb. <laughs> rhubarb. Oof, we had some rhubarb. rhubarb with uh, roast pork from the farm the other day. It's so good because it cuts the, uh, the richness of the pork. And Absolutely. that's really lovely. Nice. And I wanted to ask, what's, uh, what's next for you? So, I mean, you're, you, you still teach all the time. Uh, and oh, do you have I, any, I do, you have do, any books but, uh, in the we works? Have, um, you know, we have students literally from all over the world here. There are 11 nationalities here at the moment uh, from the US, Australia, Japan, Zimbabwe, uh, Romania, all over the place. Uh, so, and I teach, of course, uh, I'm still here very hands-on, but we have one teacher with every six students. Mm. So it's the highest teacher-student ratio, I think, of any school almost anywhere. And we do bespoke courses as well if people are coming over uh, and they just have a certain number of days they can contact us and we can do um, uh, an afternoon or a day for them uh, if that's you know depending on availability and also it's good for people to know that uh, if they're in the area if they're in Ireland and they're down in the Cork East Cork area they can uh, come in for an afternoon cooking class and uh, and on any day and you can look online www.cookingisfun.ie and then you can see exactly what we're going to be cooking that afternoon you can have a taste of what's being cooked and then our gardens and our organic farm is also open to the public all year round as well and uh, so people can literally just come in uh, as part of their holiday or else of course they can book on to a two and a half day or a week course or we do a five-week one and a 12-week one and a, a six-week sustainable food production course as well, all sorts of things, and butchery and fermenting and foraging and uh, how to make cheese and yogurt, all sorts of things, anything we think people might like to come to. Well, it sounds incredible. I can't wait to come and visit, and perhaps we can collaborate. Yes, indeed. It would be nice to see you again. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Trina Allen, for joining me today on Feast Your Ears, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review the show if you like it, and please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. You can follow Darina on Instagram at Darina underscore Allen, and you can follow the Ballymaloo Cookery School on Instagram as well. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebrationing happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.